You're listening to the GetShitDone.com podcast with Kelman Knudsen and Carrie Sullivan. All right. Welcome to another Get Shit Done. And today we have a great guest. We have Mr. Sean Stevenson on here. And when I first met Sean, I actually met Sean at Telman's wedding. And I was just telling Sean that I remember meeting him there. And uh, he didn't remember meeting me. So it was, uh, it was obviously a life-changing event for him. Uh, but because <laughs> but, um, we, we sat next to each other and ate or whatever. But what happened is... I show up to Telman's wedding, and what, what had happened is uh, Telman at that time was training to run across the country. And so I get this voicemail from Telman, and Telman was doing all his business calls at that time running with his Bluetooth headset in. And so I, I get this voicemail, and it's literally Telman going, Sullivan, 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 Sullivan. And all you can hear is like wind and cars going by. And he's like, ah, yeah, so dude, um, I'm getting married uh, next weekend. Uh, so it'd be cool if you could come. So I was like, all right, I'll be there. Went there. And then I go to the wedding and then I see Mr. Sean Stevenson and Sean is about three feet tall. Uh, he's in his wheelchair. It's like, Oh, who's this guy? I'm sure he's pretty interesting because Telman had him. And then he actually did the ceremony with Telman and Jody. And it was unbelievable. It was the best wedding ceremony I've ever seen to this day. And, uh, there wasn't a dry eye there. Even all the grown men were like crying and stuff like that. So Sean did a heck of a job. But uh, that is how I met Sean. And then, um, you know, the other thing is Telman and Jody have a very unique story about how they got married. And, you know, Telman and Jody have both told me their stories, right? And Telman's like, no, 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 that's not what happened. This is what happened. And then Jody did it. But Sean was very responsible for how this all happened and so today i think we're going to get to the bottom line of what really happened here so that's sean sean what's your story on how you got these two to marry well you see i had um i've been stalking them for decades and I, <laughs> I realized that these two young whippersnappers needed to get together no what happened was uh i was on uh, necker island which is richard branson's home and uh, Jody and Tillman were there as well as uh, participants in this uh, program that was going on on Necker Island. And I was asking them because, you know, they had a kid running around with them. And, and I'm like, well, okay, they're obviously together. And I somehow brought up the question of like, you know, when did you guys get married or how, you know, like, when, you know, are you married? And, and it was so interesting to see their faces because Tillman kind of had this like, don't bring that up energy. And then Jody kind of had like, well, that's an interesting story. You know, if you ask my father, uh, you know, he would love to see that day come. And I just remember being like, why is Telman being a pussy? Like why? <laughs> if, if he's got, you know, a kid and he loves this woman, he says he's going to be with her forever. Like, what is he, what is he waiting on? I mean, you know, let's do this. So I, Basically called him out in front of everybody and said, Tillman, you are an adventure junkie. Uh, and you know it would mean the world to her family and probably her to uh, be married. Why not get married on Richard Branson's private island with a three-foot-tall minister uh, presiding over the ceremony? Why don't we do this? And once I got to that adventure dopamine-seeking dopamine part of his brain, he put the math together in his head and was like, 
let's do this. So he's, like, he's like, hey, babe, you want to get married? And and it was like the most like casual, not romantic uh, proposal I've ever seen. And she looks at him and goes, I need to think about it. And and I this is what what I remember. She made him wait like an hour or something. And you she see? like, so, yeah, this is because Jody's like, no, 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 no. It was ten minutes, and Tom was like, no, it was like two hours. <laughs> Sean's saying it's an hour. Okay, I'm saying it's about an hour. Um, but uh, then what was awesome was uh, at the time Tellman uh, had a shaggy mop on his head. Uh, not unlike yourself, and so he, uh, they, they snipped off a piece of it, and they made uh, wedding bands out of Tellman's hair, if I recall correctly, and uh, then I pres uh, presided over them um, in a really tall chair um, on Richard Branson's island. Richard Branson was the ring bearer, and uh, it was just a, a magical, impromptu uh, matrimony on a private island with the billionaires. So it's just like another another boring Tuesday for Tellman. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was epic to be able to do it. And then Tellman asked me later, he's like, would you do this in front of the family? I'll like bring you back into my, to my, uh, to my home. And it was just so great because um, to, to close up the story, to see Jody's family, it was like, closure is like you know when they finally catch the criminal in the end of the movie and you're like justice is served that, <laughs> that is kind of what it felt like to their family because i don't think they ever thought that they would see it in their lifetime so i just i was grateful to be able to create that experience yeah. for jody's family let me let me tell yeah. one more quick story about tellman this 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 captures tellman in essence too so i show up to his wedding it's about five minutes before it starts he's like He's like, what's up, dude? He's like, did you get here easy? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. And everything. He's like, great. He goes, uh, well, I gotta go. I'll be right back. I go, where are you going? He goes, I gotta write my wedding vows. Yeah. I mean, that's not that's not too uncommon. Actually, that's not too uncommon. Really? You see that yeah, a lot? Five I, minutes I've before? I've presided over a lot of weddings now. And I'm not sure, Tellman, but that might have been my second wedding that I had presided over. Um okay. And I, green. I didn't realize that. You smoked What's that? You're very green. Yeah. Well, at the time, didn't seem like it. I was just, I was just like shooting from the hip at the time, I guess. But uh, I, I'd seen so many people write their vows the day of. So in Tellman's defense, you know, I mean, what I loved about Tellman's wedding also was uh, I felt like we were going back in time because uh, he had like this, this very burly storyteller, and then they had like musical didgeridoo dudes, if I recall and sure. like it just felt more like a uh, medieval festival and there was nothing ordinary or boring about it which is what tickles Tellman the most about himself is there's nothing <laughs> and boring right oh Sean you're a funny dude well Sean I from the bottom of my heart thank you for marrying us twice it's awesome and yes. uh still going strong so that's okay. awesome I right. can't say that for all the marriages I've presided over, but <laughs> right, I'm back so, at eighty percent right now. <laughs> so, so let's stop talking about weddings and start talking a little bit about your interesting, amazing story, Sean. I, I mean, you uh, you speak a lot. You train people how to speak. You've done uh, how many? Do you have any idea how many times you've been on stage? I mean, it's over twenty three years, averaging say. 
40 a year. Oh, wow. But, but a it, lot. So yeah. You spend a lot of time speaking from stage. How old are you? I'm turning 38. All right. So I, I just turned 40. So we're just about two years apart. And uh, at the end of the day, if you wouldn't mind just giving people a quick recap of the crazy story of Sean Stevenson and how you entered this world, all the craziness with your health growing up, and then and then bringing you to the point of becoming a motivational public speaker who's been speaking from stage over and over and over and over and over again for years. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment considering public speaking is most people's number one fear. Right. And yeah, I mean, you're you're just you're you're going strong uh, despite all the medical situations that were completely and totally against you. You're, you, you have an absolutely incredible story and I'm sure you've told it a million times, but I would love it if you tell it again for our get shit done listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it just kind of set the stage when I was born, the doctors told my parents I'd be dead within the first 24 hours. And I'm happy to report that, like I said, 38 years later, <laughs> I'm still here and all those oh. dead. So, uh, you know, I'm the only doctor that remains from that room that day. So that <laughs> <laughs> nice, and uh, that goes over well everywhere, but at the hospital system is when I'm speaking. Okay? <laughs> and you know, I faced the odds my whole life. In fact, I get nervous when I enter into a scenario where there's not a great amount of adversity facing me. I, I feel like, oh my goodness, this is too easy. I've, I've built my whole life around beating the odds, the million to one mentality. And so growing up with this condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, my bones were very fragile as a child. Something as simple as sneezing would fracture rib or collarbone. And, you know, by the time I turned 18, we'd estimated about 200 fractures um, I experienced. And, you know, being three feet tall in a wheelchair, I've been stared at every day of my life, still am today. Um, and what's fascinating is, not the challenges that I faced, but the little paradigm shifts that I intentionally chose that kept me in a space of survival. And not just to survive, but to thrive. And one of them, and it relates most to your listeners, is how can I use this to my advantage? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, right. that's that, right. that mentality, that mentality goes whether you're an entrepreneur or an athlete or a, or a mom or a dad, like how can I use this uh, to my own benefit? Not yep. like a manipulative, how can I take advantage, but rather how can I use this to my benefit? And, you know, growing up, I was stared at, right? And so I decided at a young age I wanted to be famous because if I wanted to, if I was going to be stared at, I wanted to be stared at for what I had done, not what I look like. And what's fascinating about that is now, after all these years of building this career, you know, we've had such virality from the internet with my videos and things that I've done online. Talman, you, you recall years ago emailing me, Sean, your dance party video is going viral. Yeah. Capture the leads. And, you know, uh, <laughs> just last year, we had our biggest viral video. It went to 68 million views. And I watched it climb a million views an hour for days. And, 
and then it got downloaded and re-uploaded to over 250 million people from what we could find. Wow. So a quarter, a quarter of a billion people saw our message just last year alone. Which, so which video was that? It was me holding up post-it notes talking about how you got to love yourself. And oh, you can, yes. I saw that video. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You and 250 other million people. It's pretty wild how the the right message in and we'll talk about that maybe. But you know when you when you get to the right uh, core of a human being, they can't help but to talk about it, right? And so I've I've done a tremendous amount with my life, but I want to out the guru here within me. I'm always going on these interviews and. And I feel like more like I'm at confession than anything uh, because I don't ever want to have an incorrect vision in people's mind of what my life is like. So I've lived a glamorous, wonderful life also filled with hardship and adversity. But the truth is everything I've done, which is the premise to why we're here talking about getting shit done, I don't feel like I've done much with my life. Now that might sound contrarian or stupid, but uh, I really, my internal vision of what I want to create never matches up to what I'm doing because I, my goals are so big and what I want to do. I mean, my overarching premise to why I'm alive, the purpose to my life is to rid the world of insecurity in my lifetime. I mean, think about that. Like we all have insecurities and I have this ridiculously audacious goal to rid the world of insecurities. How's that possible? And so when most people look at my life and they're like, oh, you worked in the White House with the president. You, you've written a book that's bestseller that's been in 12 different languages. You've done this, you've done that. You know, how do you get all this stuff done? I actually feel like a slacker compared to my goals. And that's the difference is I, I think your goals have to be so big that your success seems small. That, uh -huh. that, might, that might seem ridiculous, but hopefully that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that you were talking about is that you, you basically created this empowering meeting around you know your story, who you are, and, you know your circumstances and everything like that. And now, did you just come up with that? Did you learn how to do that? What? How did you do that in order to help you you know get shit done? So I've had a lot of mentors, mm -hmm. um, and I actually I have another word that I would throw Talman in the category of. And that's a friend tour. Some that I am friends, but it's also <laughs> friend tour. It's also given me great counsel. And you know, I in my mind, I have I feel like King Arthur because I have this Knights of the Round Table of friend tours that you know one may be an excellent athlete and tell me anything they that I want to know about the body. The next person might be you know an incredible real estate investor. Next person might be an incredible online marketer. Next person might be an incredible parenting guide. You know, like I have all these uh, knights, both men and women, that have been my become my friends and mentored me. And these individuals have pushed on me. You know, I like being around people who live such gregarious, incredible lives that I feel like I've not done anything with mine. Mm. I really like to set myself up that way. And when I go into a room and I am the most popular and I am the most um, articulate and I am the most successful, I'm like, holy shit, I need to get out of this room as fast as possible because I'm not being challenged. I'm not, right. you know, when I go to, I spend a lot of money every year 
to go to you know networking groups so that I can be around people that make me feel like I'm not doing anything with my life. And that's right. by design. <laughs> that's by design. I'm trying to I'm trying to like smoke the insecurity out of me so that I get shit done. Right on. So so that's really good, right? So let's talk about insecurity for a second because I, I think it's safe to say, maybe you'll disagree with me, but I think it's safe to say that most people on the planet have insecurities today. I would say everyone on the planet has Okay, good, good. Yeah. So that's, that was a premise that I came across because I thought only some had it, some didn't. Yeah. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, Sean, you've done a shit ton of work on yourself and you still have them. And then I, and I investigated the people that I thought were the most confident people in the world that behind closed doors, they're still insecure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, it's everywhere. And, and that is what, what gets wild is I realized that to get rid of your insecurities, you have to realize they're never going away. And that sounds ridiculously con um, contrasting, but the, the idea is you have to stay ahead of them. You can't get rid of them, but you have to stay ahead of them. And so there's a way you can live. I, I found the cure to insecurity. It's daily self-care. That's it. Okay, let's, so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, what are some insecurities that you've had in the past yeah. that you've used a, your daily self-care model in order to either eliminate or reduce or overcome. Yeah, do yeah. You, and also do, do, do these change over time to your insecurities or are they always the same? Damn straight, yes. Yeah. So I'll answer comment first. So uh, some overarching insecurities because there are like grandparent insecurities that feed down all the other crap and then there's the daily things that show up, right? Right. And they are more like symptoms usually of that grandparent. Um, and, you know, one of the grandparents is, um, is anybody ever going to listen to, believe, or want to be led by a little man in a wheelchair. You know, that that's that's probably never going away. I can stay ahead of it. You know, so here I am with a book out that's been in 12 different languages around the world, still selling 10 years later, and, and in print, which most books disappear off the shelf in like a few months. And it's because of the message. And what I have to realize is, no one cares about three foot tall man in a wheelchair. They care about his message that he brings. And that when my mentor asked me, why were you born, Sean? That really helped make a massive shift in getting ahead of my insecurities. It was to rid the world of insecurities. And he said he felt the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. And he said, yes, you were. And the reason why I know you were is because if there was ever to be and, and take the religious sense of this word, but there was ever to be a prophet on how to overcome insecurities that the human race would listen to, it would come in a three-foot-tall man in a wheelchair who That's didn't right. seem insecure, right? And yep. so when when I found that the, the cure to insecurity is daily self-care, that was a game-changer for me because I noticed that my, when your insecurities are flourishing and they've taken a hold of you, it's because you've completely ignored taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And when when your insecurities are the quietest and you can't even hear them and they aren't influencing you, it's because you're taking great immaculate self-care. And, and it's more than just about like go to the spa and pamper yourself and stay in good shape. 
we're talking about mind, body, spirit, you know, that you're actually doing the heavy lifting. And, you know, I have a, I have something that I have on my wall that that's going to help your viewers get shit done. And it's called my when life works list. It's an, essentially a self-care list. And there's about 16 items, not about, there's 16 items on this list. And I only need to do four of them. I can choose any combination of them a day. And I will not have my insecurities rule me that day. But if I do three or less, I am insecurities little bitch. And I hate that. <laughs> and that's why I found for me that ins your insecurities flourish when you aren't taking care of yourself, because when you're not taking care of yourself, then you question everything. You're like, well, if I'm not even good to me, why should anybody else be good to me? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the, I want to ask you a question. I've, uh, you know, I, I used to be a professional triathlete, competed at a lot of different levels and everything, and then also in the business, a lot of things in the business world transfer over into you know being able to get shit done. And one thing I found is is the person who comes out and talks about how great they are. Like before a race, someone's like, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I knew I was going to beat that guy because I knew it was yeah. all BS, right? And you find that in the business world. You get these people who like, you're just having a conversation. The whole time, they're talking about how great they are. Have you found that too, that that person usually isn't that great or whatever? And like, what is going on with that? Because every time I see it, I'm like, oh, this guy's totally not a threat. I know it's game over. Sure. So... To answer that, we have to look at two concepts. One is arrogance and one is confidence. Yeah. And people confuse them all the time. Yeah, yeah. But they couldn't be further from each other if they tried. So confidence and arrogance are different by one set of letters. Uh, actually, two little letters. Um, and that is I am. So whenever I'm improving... I'm confident when I'm improving my health, I'm improving my relationships, I'm improving my uh, skill sets. I'm in a place of confidence because I'm improving. When you get rid of the I am, what am I doing now? Improving. You're just proving. And when you're trying to prove something to somebody, it's because you don't believe it yourself and you're overcompensating. So you're swinging that pendulum so far to the other side that everybody, like yourself, you were saying, knows, oh, that guy's trying to convince himself. He's trying to talk himself into something that he thinks isn't really there. And this is why confident people need not take anything from anybody else to feel solid. Confident people don't need to uh, get their validation. Confident people don't need to intimidate. Confident people don't need to rob somebody of their confidence, you know, by boasting, right? A confident person checks in with themselves and says, hey, what are we need right now what, what skill set what understanding what resource what mentorship what amount of sleep do we need what do we need to improve ourselves and whenever i'm improving i know i'm okay whenever i feel like i'm trying to prove something i'm like uh-oh you're overcompensating sean it's not really there and you're worried that you're gonna have to puff your chest out to scare people away and that always ends badly and that's why you're able to beat those guys that's interesting that's right. That's right. So, Sean, you have done a ton of public speaking, and I know that you've been helping more people learn how to speak publicly. And I'm curious about 
what you find makes a truly great public speaker who can overcome their insecurities and go on to blossom, go on to flourish versus the type of person that might do some of your training and never actually take the stage or maybe they take the stage and they screw up once or twice or three times and they give up and they throw in the towel and they never benefit from the, the learning. What, what, what for you makes the difference between someone who can take a training like one of yours and put it to use and get shit done versus someone that's just going to peter out and, and do nothing? Yeah. So you kind of had two questions in there that I want to dissect out if I could. One question is what makes a truly great speaker? And I don't, I don't know if you want me to address that. And then the other one is, what makes the speaker actually get shit done? Which which one are you looking? They're both. They're both. I'm, I'm more interested in 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 what you, in your students and the people that learn from you and work for you. What's the difference between the person that makes yeah, progress and the one that simple. doesn't? Very simple, and that is the student who is willing to get messy goes far. The student who is willing to go out in front of a crowd and try something new out with that crowd is far better than the student who is the hermit perfectionist. And the hermit perfectionist never goes anywhere in life. They, they, they might have the best speeches, actually. They might have the best messages. They might have everything perfectly crafted, but it's not ready ever for them. And the people that are willing to pull the trigger sooner get get it out there and are willing to make some messes and then learn from their messes and, and tweak it and get back into it. Whether that's writing copy for a speech, whether that's writing um, content to deliver, whatever it is, the one that's willing to get the messiest goes the farthest. That doesn't even mean that they're the best. Sometimes the best never take the court, but we never know about them. And the divine moment is when you take a person who's willing to get messy, who's incredibly coachable, they can't be stopped. Right, because that's their, right. Their, their, their ego is out of the mix, and they're like, hey, push me to get better, push me to get better, push me to get better. They are improving junkies, and they go far. In fact, I believe that the greatest speakers on the planet that we know of are the ones that get messy and get coached. That's right. right on. That's right. Tell me, do you, you want to follow up good. on the, the second part of that question? Do you want to get that answered? Or are you, what makes it great? Well, never mind. Just, I mean, we know you want to know it. Well, I'm but, sure. I want to know it all, man. It's an absolutely excellent public speaker. Yeah. Yes. So what makes a phenomenal speaker is a speaker who understands that no one showed up to hear them speak. Hmm. They showed up to get problems solved. Mm. They showed up to reduce pain and feel more pleasure. And they showed up to try to figure out what the hell are you saying to them that is going to relate directly to them. And when, as a speaker, if you, if you get up and you take the stage knowing that that audience is not there for you, that that audience is there for themselves, and then there's this one last caveat that really helps, it makes me who I am in speaking, and I believe in my own space that I have become what I wanted to be as far as quality of speaker, and that is, I'm not there for the audience either. I'm there for myself. And so, 
that while that sounds selfish and disconnected, it's actually not. It's honest, and it when I'm speaking to the audience, I'm really talking to myself. So when I talk about the When Life Works list, I'm talking about it because I need to hear it again. When I'm talking about getting shit done, it's because I need to be reminded. I'm talking about love and being kind to others. I'm talking to myself. And when I am passionately trying to get through to Sean, the audience goes, wow, this is phenomenal. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, that, that's one of the great things about our podcast is because I actually get way more out of it than probably anybody else out there asking these questions and whatever. So that brings me to my next question, right? With You've written a book, right? And it became a bestseller. Did you have the goal to go out there and make that book a bestseller? Was that the goal? I mean, it was 10 years ago, so I can't remember specifically. I'm sure I wanted it to be, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what I cared more about was that it had longevity. Okay. Because I had seen, um, and no knock directly on anybody in our profession, but a lot of people churn and burn books that sound like the last book they wrote yeah. with a new cover and a new title, and all they care about is the shell game to get onto some list. Yeah. And, and that, that makes me queasy inside um, because I actually believe that a book should be a, a part of your body of work that when you die is your legacy and it helps continue on the impact that you made while you were alive. Yeah. So I look, at, I look at podcast interviews, books, video courses, anything that I'm doing, I am developing my body of work so that when I perish, Sean Stevenson's impact continues to have uh, a lasting effect. So when I wrote that book, I was like, what book am I going to write that I'll be proud of my great-grandkids reading? And, you know, to be honest, that's why I haven't written a book in 10 years. I haven't, although I'm starting to feel the flutters inside, <laughs> I haven't, um, I haven't had a concept or an idea that I felt as passionately as I did 10 years ago. Yeah. And I didn't be that guy that turned out a different book every year and you know i i probably suffer from um not reaching as many people as i could in that regard so you could make the other argument but i want to be always standing behind what i create and super proud of it yeah so that was actually kind of what i was i was going to ask you next in terms of like how did you actually make that a, a you know a bestseller and it hit the way you did and i think what I would say from listening to you is that it was because you had that bigger vision with it, right? That you wanted it to yeah. be something that was going to impact forever. I had a bigger vision and yeah. I, I also was willing to get messy with it. Mm. What I mean by that is most people are embarrassed if they are talking about a book that came out 10 years ago. They're like, oh, I should have a newer book. I should have a newer book because new is better. New is better. Bullshit. You know, there's some yeah. stories that are as old as time that just have such an incredible impact on me. I mean, I don't even know when Braveheart came out, but every time it's yeah. on in a hotel, I have to watch it all the way through. Yeah, yeah, I, me too. I have to. Like, when I'm on, there's just a handful of movies, Back to the Future, Point Break, and, and Braveheart. When they come on the television, it could be three in the morning at the hotel, and I'm like, shit, I'm going to be up till five. And it's because <laughs> I love it so much. And, and so one of the reasons is, after all these years, I still encourage all my corporate clients 
have you considered buying a book for everybody in your audience? And so I'm still the number one salesman of that book. I'm still believing in it. I'm still pushing it. I'm still going out with my literary agent to see what other countries might be interested in it. We just sold the rights in France, and it's 10 years after the first English copy came out. And we just brought it out to France because I really believe that it has a message that has the marathon approach to it. It's great. Awesome. Love it. Awesome. Now, Sean, we were talking earlier about self-care and taking care of your body, physical, of course, mental, spiritual. Um, and in the past, when we've spoken, you've had quite a array of things that you not only want to do to keep yourself healthy, but many things that you need to do in order to keep your body strong and healthy. I would love to hear a little bit about the day, a day in the life of Sean Stevenson in terms of what does your day look like in order to keep your mind, in order to keep your body, in order to keep your spirit dialed in so that you can remain productive and, and continue to accomplish more things and continue to grow and continue to be inspired? What does your average day look like when you're not traveling? Um, that a lot, what do you do in order to keep yourself strong? Yeah, well, I want to um, I want to make sure that the image in people's minds are accurate. I fall down a lot on my rituals. Um, I teach this because I need to hear this. Um, and and the difference between me and most humans, and I believe it's why I get a lot of things done and why I've achieved so much, is because you the only thing that will knock me completely down is death. Um, I. I will always get back up. That is the core premise to my life. Um, and it doesn't matter what happens to me, I get back up. But with that said, I fall down more than others. I make a lot of mistakes. And so I just needed to set that tone. Um, what is a, a day in the life of Sean Stevenson? Well, on the day that I'm in my zone and making uh, improvements on my When Life Works list, um, what will happen is I'll wake up and I will uh, go into my living room and I will pull out my journal and I'll journal three pages and I'll just dump whatever is in my mind. It's based on Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. It's a great book. It's more of a manual than anything. And she says, if you write three pages a day, you will be more creative than ever. And I totally agree with her. So I will dump out whatever's in my mind for three pages. Then I'll go and I'll take a very intense shower. And most people just shower off to get rid of smell. I shower off through visualization. I shower off my frustrations. I shower off my worries. I practice um, my speeches in the shower. So I visualize. Like, I do a lot of daydreaming. I probably daydream more than anybody I know. I close my eyes a lot and I just visualize what do I want my life to look like? And I visualize walking through um, a sp important speech that I have coming up. I try out new content in the shower. Then once I get out of the shower, I pull out my cell phone and I do all my social media connection while drying off with a hair dryer because I can't really easily reach my whole body with a towel with my arms. So I use a hair dryer. So while I'm holding my hair dryer, I got my phone in the other hand and I'm responding to people and I'm connecting with people around the world to my social media. Then I, uh, I go to my office, which is about a mile from my house, 
and I go into my office and I will lower my 110 inch uh, movie screen that I'm super proud of how we mounted it illegally in our office building and, <laughs> and I, uh, I will turn on my projector and I will I will watch one of many 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 uh, courses that I'm going through whether it's listening to a course on Kevin Spacey on how to be a really good actor because I believe uh, part of the roles of speaking is to be a really good actor or I'll watch, you know, uh, a video from Evan Pagan on his newest uh, way to increase productivity. Or um, I will go through a course on spirituality from Abraham Hicks, Esther Hicks. Um, then once I've watched about an hour, hour and a half of personal growth, then I will sit down at the computer and I will put together a newsletter. Um, and then I will um, work for a few hours. You know, I am... I'm somebody that does really well on, I realized I had my eyes closed for a long time. Um, I, I do really well when I'm pushed against a wall. And I wish, I wish I wasn't this way. I, I, hope, I hope that someday before I die, I figure out how to be better in the gray, but I'm very black or white. And it's, it's to my own success and detriment. And so that means that if I know that there's not much time left on the clock, I will create masterpieces. If you give me a lot of time to do something, I won't sit down to do it. And I, I, I don't think that that's healthy, but that's the truth. Um, I do really well when there's no more time on the clock. So when I work with my assistant, Rose, who's an angel in my business, I tell her, look, if you want something phenomenal done, then I need to believe, you need to convince me that we have no more time. And, uh, and, and a lot of getting shit done for me is not giving me too much lead time. Yeah, that was, that's pretty I'm interesting. Well, hey, I mean, so everybody that comes on here has a different way of getting shit done, and they've kind of figured out how they operate and everything like that. And that was actually kind of something I was going to ask you next, right? So, so you have to write a book, you know, and there's a lot of ways to get things done. And for me, I'm like, okay, if I really want to get something done, I got to break it down into a system to go after it, right? It doesn't totally seem like you do that, right? So let's say you had to write another book or something like that, or you have some other kind of goal. How is it that, I mean, and obviously you gotta take some action to get that done, right? How is it that you would try to get that done and make that happen? Well, let's just be honest and out how I wrote the last one. Okay. <laughs> I'll set the picture in your mind. Okay. <laughs> I was sitting in the, I believe it's called the uh, the Roosevelt Hotel. Um, it's a very famous hotel in Hollywood. I kind of think of the name. I think it's Roosevelt. And I was. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's it's a nice place. Yeah. Pretty and sure. I am uh, I'm soaking my shirt with my own tears, and <laughs> I'm hating my life. Because I have my editor on, uh, on the line with me saying, if you don't get this last chapter in tonight, you, we won't go to print with this book. 
And I am at this hotel because the next morning I'm going on the Jimmy Kimmel live show for another project that I'm working on. So I want to be rested for this live interview. First, I'm going on Adam Carolla's radio show. Then I'm going on Jimmy Kimmel Live in front of the whole nation. The first time I've ever been on live television uh, through a national uh, audience. I'm soaking my laptop and my shirt with my tears, hating myself for putting this off, pushing, 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 creating a masterpiece, falling asleep at my laptop. That is the truth. All right, so when, so when you put that out there then, because this kind of gets into your philosophy of putting things in, where you're like, uh, I don't think this is good enough or whatever, because you're like, I didn't have that I couldn't go back and redo things and edit things the way I want. Were, were those some of the things going through your head? Well, I knew we were going to edit it, but yeah. I had to push myself to get the first draft out. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm funny because... I hate writing copy. I hate writing books. Yeah. I hate writing, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love being, have been written. I love having been written because um, the first draft is always the hardest for me. Once I get the first draft done, I have no problem sitting down and editing the crap out of something. I, in fact, I love, they're, they're, this is so contrasting, but I hate writing copy, but I love editing my own copy. So mm -hmm. once I get that first sweep done, yeah. then I am super happy to work on it for three times longer, perfecting it. Yeah. But that first sweep, I'm a crying, sniveling little baby, and I hate it. I hate it. In fact, if somebody said, do you like copywriting? I'd say, no, it's the devil. But if they said, well, Sean, you love editing it and making it better. Like, if Tommy sent me copy... And he said, Sean, will you look over this? I would do it with joy. I would spend hours helping him upgrade it in the <laughs> ways that I could see it. But if he said, Sean, will you send me some copy about what this webinar is going to be about? I would disappear from his life. <laughs> I, would, I, would go, I would go dark. He would have to get a team to find me on the planet. Put it on. Sean, out of curiosity, since you do write to some degree, right, obviously. Uh, do you write a lot of blog posts or a lot of emails at this point? More now than ever, yes. And you're obviously a very experienced and articulate speaker. Uh, and we're friends with many of the same people, i.e. Dean Jackson is who immediately pops into mind. I'm curious why you don't uh, record your books instead of writing them by hand if you don't like writing so much? So I've tried that a bunch. I, I thought you probably have. Yeah, I've tried that a bunch. And I look at speaking and writing as two different worlds. I When I read a book, I feel like I can tell if some asshole talked it into a microphone. I, I just <laughs> It doesn't work for me. Because it feels, it doesn't feel like it's been written. And mm -hmm. I have a different concept of written. Written feels like each word was chosen and chewed and swallowed with intention. Speaking sometimes feels like a flow, like mm -hmm. a river. It's floating and it's never going to be the same the second time you do it. And 
and maybe that's been my block in my life, but I, I feel like when I write, man, when I sit behind that computer with that keyboard, I really want each word to have a different impact. When I'm speaking, I'm flowing. Like when I'm speaking, my best speeches are the ones that I've never given. Like mm-hmm. I've never given before, I should say. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the words coming, they aren't from me, they're through me, right? Yeah. Um, and I haven't been able, because I don't, I don't think of myself as a writer. Um, I think of myself as a speaker. So when I go to write, um, it, it feels a little bit like it's less coming through me and more from me, and maybe that's been my challenge. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so when you're talking about your best speeches, you just kind of can get up and, and freestyle a little bit. So do you just go up there and freestyle every time now? I've, I've gone through periods. Yeah. And uh, I, I gave myself a challenge where I went an entire year and I never gave him the same talk twice. And I like that, it. That was exhilarating. It was scary. It was fun. Uh, but now what I do is I do a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, because I like material that has been tried on multiple audiences. Yeah. Because you know exactly. It's almost like writing, right, versus speaking. It's like you know exactly the word that's going to make them cry. They're exactly the phrase, exactly the the intention, the, the intonation, and the, the, the change in your, in your cadence, right? And, and when you try, when you're trying out new material, you don't, you don't have the same flavor as material that you've tried before. Mm. And I really love a speech that's about 80-20. 80% tried and true material you know is going to land. 20% that's new and exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, let me give a little caveat. And that is, if I'm doing a speech that really, really, really matters, I go 100% to script. Because I want to make sure... I get exactly the impact that I'm looking for. If I have some playroom with an audience, I will, I will shift it to be more flowed content. So, and that's just my own personal style. I, I feel that when I'm up on a stage, um, the audience is like a musician. Tellman, who's one of your favorite musicians? Like a single artist. Well, wow, one of my favorite musicians. Jeez. Um, I, I really enjoy listening to Flatfoot 56. Okay. Imagine going to a concert. Yeah. Would you want to hear all new songs? Or would you also want to hear some of your favorites? No, yeah. You, you want to hear mostly your favorites, and then you want to hear a, a few that are cutting edge and new that hopefully are good. Right. That's exactly the way I feel as a speaker. Yeah, makes sense. I, I so I get two questions around that. So I've I've asked certain stand up comedians this because I always think it's really fascinating. Have you have you ever had hecklers at any of your events? Um. Yes. How do you deal with those guys? Firearms. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
you know, I, and actually, tell, tell, tell us a story about, about like, a heckler guy. Someone stand up and be like, you're full of shit, or whatever. Just, like, tell, and how'd you deal with it? And how do you think it's an effective way to deal with that? Well, no different than a sale. You deal with the objections up front mm-hmm. before they become objections. So you set yourself up to not have hecklers. Mm. And that's by... Framing my talks in a way that I'm not trying to act like I know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to frame it so that I don't ever act like I'm perfect. I frame it so that they know how many mistakes I've made. Think about that in this webinar. Even. I've set up the tone and it's authentic. I've let you know the stupid things that I've done and the impacts that I put on myself for not doing things always the right way. And hecklers like to tear down people that are on pedestals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I start every talk by whittling down the legs of those pedestals before anybody else can. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is if somebody's like drunk and disorderly, um, if, it's, if only a certain handful of people in an audience are noticing, I move on as if they, they don't exist. Mm-hmm. If if it starts to shift that eighty percent of the crowd is now paying attention to somebody else, not me, yeah. then I will handle it direct. And, you know, when I started speaking to schools, I would get that a lot with kids. And sometimes I would directly deal with the kid, and sometimes I would just have the I would ask to have the kid removed. Um, it would depend on the scenario. Sometimes I would diffuse it with humor. Sometimes I would I would do the opposite. So, perfect example. I was heckled on Jimmy Kimmel Live. No way. I was heckled by the other guest that was on that night. Oh, no way. Who was it? Can we say who it was? <laughs> Happy to. Yeah. Johnny Knoxville. Are you kidding me? So what do you say? So he just kept making jokes, and he was very belittling um, and just posturing that he's the celebrity and I'm this yeah. weirdo uh, young nobody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my brain cycled through all the possible scenarios to put this fucker down, right? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. That's one way to deal with him, right? Yeah, so I realized that I was the unknown on that stage. Yeah. And the unknown, when they try to out-macho or out-alpha a guy, is just looking like a smartass. So I thought, what's the one thing that I've learned my whole life that melts every bit of hate, anger, intimidation? It's love. Right. I'm like, this guy is not going to see this coming. So I turn to him and I start praising him. And I say, hey, I, I, I just want you to know, when I first saw you on video, I didn't like you. And then that sets it up to be, I do now like him, right? Yeah. And I said, but I saw the movie The The Ringer, where you really did a wonderful job of putting people with disabilities into a great light. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank you in person for doing such a wonderful job in that role. Yeah. And once I did oh. that, once I did that, he didn't know what to do. He closed his mouth. <laughs> he, he got into the lotus position. And he sat there bewildered the rest of the night. Because now, 
If he teased me now, what does he look like? A complete, well, he, a jackass, yeah. And he probably right. felt like crap after that too, right? No, I don't think so. You don't think um, so? I don't think so, but I think, I think, you know, I someday I'd love to talk to him about it, although I bet he forgot it. Um, <laughs> but what, what happened in that moment is I was able to turn back to Jimmy Kimmel and get into a dialogue, and you could tell, look, he's built his whole brand around jackass, right? Yeah. And no one has probably put him in a good light very often. Right. And to, to have somebody, and I was genuine when I was thanking him. That's the difference between manipulation and actually connection. And the connection is I thought, if I need to stop this guy, it needs to be authentic. If he feels that this is a tactic, it's not going to work. I actually have to thank him for that movie. And I was grateful for that movie. And I was grateful for his performance in that. And, and that level of congruence, when my thoughts, feelings, and actions were all aligned, it, that's, what, that's when you are your most powerful. Is when your thoughts, feelings, and actions are aligned, you can do anything. That's right. I know. That's right. Wow, good story. Good story. So, you know, Sean, you've revealed quite a few very interesting perspectives here on the podcast so far. But the one thing that has caught my mind that we haven't closed the loop on is your When Life Works list. And you mentioned that you have 16 items on your list. I don't know how many of them you have memorized, but I would love to hear what some of them are so people can get an idea. If they were going to create their own Win Life Works list, get some examples from what, what you do, I really like the tool because it's this idea of a poster with 16 items apparently that are important to you that help you live a better life, that, but you only have to do three or four of them a day and, and things are on lockdown and it's moving forward. I really like that on um, like the GSD menu. You know, it's just kind of, you know, how, how do you set yourself up for success? So if you'd be willing to share yes. a few of your Win Life uh, Works items, I think it would be great. So here's how you put the Win Life Works list together, and then I'll tell you my items. Cool. The way you put it together is you, you look back on your life and you ask yourself the question, when was I at my best? Not when was I perfect. But when was I at my best? In my health. Okay, what did I do back then that I'm not doing now if I'm not at my best now? What about my, my wealth, my, my career, my purpose, and my income? When was I at my best and what was I doing then? How about my relationships? When was I at my best and what was I doing then? And human beings are notorious for stopping doing what works. Right. It's just, it's silly, but... That's, that's resistance, right? And when you make this list of like, when was your life working? What were you doing? And once you get those items, so for me, I'll, I'll name as many as I can up yeah. to my head. I am at my best when I am hydrated, when I'm getting plenty of water. And I know I'm hydrated when I'm constantly having to pee. <laughs> it's like, if, 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 I go, if I'm going a long time without peeing, I'm like, uh-oh. I'm not, I'm not staying hydrated. Um, next thing is sleep. And these almost go hand in hand. I can't yeah. tell you which one's more important. But, you know, getting 
not just consistent sleep, but consistent restful sleep. So, like, I'm a big believer in having blackout curtains so that you don't get any light coming in until you're ready to wake up. Um, so getting consistent restful sleep, getting in a, in a pattern where my body knows, okay, it's time to get sleepy. Um, another thing is exercise. So exercise, and, and for me, I am at my best when I have a trainer. I don't like to exercise, but I love exercising. There's a difference. It's like, I don't like to write copy, but I love to edit it. It's like, I love doing something. I hate starting something. Yeah. You know, like when I, once I get, once Sean Stevenson gets into the flow of something, once he's, he's actually in the gym, he's fine. But getting him into the gym is very hard. Mm. Um, so exercising, that can be um, weightlifting, cardio. Uh, then the next thing is meditation. For me, I have an app on my phone. It's called Vortex Meditation. And I listen to, it's a 15-minute app, and I just drop everything and I listen to my meditation. Another thing is having um, an intimate moment with my wife, you know, carving time out. Whether it's sexual in nature or just friendship in nature, we're just spending time together. That really helps my life work. It regenerates me. Journaling pulling out a pen and writing out what I'm thinking in my head, what's bothering me, what desires do I have, what excites me, where am I pissed, all of that, getting it out. In fact, I believe after being a therapist for nearly 17 years now that most therapists would be out of a job if people just journaled three pages a day. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> it's things like spending time with my mentors, and my friend tours. It's things like spending time with my apprentices, people that I'm passing down information, sending the elevator back down, spending time with kids. I have nieces and nephews and, and cousins that are young and, and spending time with those young minds and thinking about how they see the world and how I once saw the world when I was younger. Um, it's, it's things like, uh, what else is on my list? I, I love to be out in nature, spend time out without any technology, and just be back to Mother Earth. So, like, these are these are the ones that just quickly come to mind. Yeah. And if I just pick out four of those, in fact, I even have an app on my phone where I, I rotate out. Um, it's called Streaks. I didn't make the app, but I like it. And it's it's got six of the, the items. Um, but I only need to do four of them. Smoothies and supplements. So one green smoothie a day. Read for 10 minutes. Hydrate. Plan out my day the night before. Ask for the sale. If I do one thing a day to ask somebody for the sale, that was a good day. That's right. And then the, the other one is work, work out and meditate. And so then once I do that, I click it, it goes away, and I know, cool, this is why I'm having a good day. If none that's, of these things are clicked, I'm like, no shit. That's why you're insecure right now. The app is called Streaks, like yep. a like a running streak. Winning yeah, streak. Streak where you do it every day. Yeah. No, this one's just this one's just called Streaks. Yep. Streaks. Yeah, that's cool. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Carrie, do you have any other questions for Sean? I I don't think so, man. He covered it all. It's great. He's the real deal. So it was awesome stuff. 
That's right. That's right. Sean, any any closing messages that you want to give people about upping their productivity, moving past their insecurities, and getting more shit done? Yes. Remember that even procrastination is progress. And in a Get Shit Done podcast, as a listener, you're probably guilting the hell out of yourself for not getting more done. And you probably feel like a failure listening to all these guests and what they do and all that they've done. Like, why? Why me? I suck. I procrastinate. But even procrastination is progress because... Not all, prog- not all procrastination is bad. Sometimes we're waiting for the right time. Sometimes we're, we're, we're waiting for the right feeling. Sometimes we're waiting for a better idea. And, you know, that video that went viral to 68 million views and then we uploaded over 250 million people viewed it, that came because I was procrastinating on working on a project. And I just pulled out, because I'd lost my voice that week, um... Because I hadn't been on my win life works list and I got my body run down. And I couldn't speak my normal one minute message. So I just decided to write the message on to post it notes and hold the post it notes up. And so there I was procrastinating on what I was supposed to working on. And that video made me a lot of money and got me more famous than anything I've ever done combined. And it came from procrastination. And I like to shatter people's ideas of what it takes because sometimes the very thing that you make yourself wrong and bad for is the very thing that's leading you to becoming the person you need to be. Right on. Well, hey, with that, I think that's a good thing to close on. Sean, people want to find more about you. Where you want them to go? Sean Stevenson. That's spelled S-E-A-N. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-O-N.com. Go there and uh, please get on my my uh, emailing list because I send out a lot of personal information. I, I let you know what I'm up to. And if you liked learning from me in this short little podcast, I'd love to continue the journey with you. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you for being an absolutely exquisite guest on Get Shit Done. And thanks for marrying us twice again. I can't. I can't thank you enough. That all worked out really great. You got Telman to pull the trigger. Yeah, you know what? I helped him get shit done. That's it. That's, right. that's, that's it. Right. That's right. And you're good at doing that. And that's why we ball. had you on. All right. Well, thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, all you GSVers out there. And we'll talk to everybody soon. Bye bye. Over now. Want to get more shit done in your life? Go to GetShitDone.com and enter your name and email.